Lost World in Sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. All right? Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. Que pasa, mi amigos? Me, I'm away. Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports. So glad that you could be with us, senor, senorita. What's happening? What's going on? Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. Bonjour. Bonsoir. Monsieur Mademoiselle. Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports. Konnichiwa. Wassalamu alaikum. Shalom. Brothers and sisters all over the world, all over this planet, listening to Wendell's World of Sports, wherever you're listening to podcasts. I am here. I am here for you. And I'm ready to talk some sports. I'm ready to get down and talk about what's happening in the world of sports. Before I do so, as I always like to say, I hope everybody is learning. I hope everybody is growing. I hope everybody's having those conversations here in America. November 3rd is coming upon us. Vote, 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 vote. Let's see what we can do to get some change in this country for the better. Do what you need to do. Go out there and let your voices be heard. Me, as a guy who likes to complain all the time, you know I'm going to be voting for somebody because, good or bad, you know I'm going to be whining and moaning and complaining and rambling. So voting gives me the freedom to go ahead and express myself any way, shape possible. So um, that's what I'm going to do, and I hope that those in this country exercise that right to do so, whether you're for what I speak about, against what I'm speaking about, whatever, man. You know, giving you the opportunity to uh, express your thoughts and views about uh, where we want to go with this country. So get out there and vote. Let your voice be heard through the ballot box, in-mail voting, whatever you want to do, man. Let's see what we can do to get some democracy back in the divided states of America and start cleaning up this mess, mess that's going to take years upon years upon years upon years to clean up, thanks to the jackass we have in the White House right now. Wendell's World of Sports. That's right, sports, sports, sports. A lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports. I'm mainly going to be concentrating on um, college football. I really haven't talked about that too much unless we're speaking about COVID. So while I'm going to be speaking about some of the cancellations, some of the postponements, some of the ideas of folks wanting to have college football, Nick Saban, being tested for the COVID-19. Now he's tested negative a couple of times. So as I'm recording this, there is no word on whether he's going to be on the sidelines for their game against the number three ranked Georgia Bulldogs on Saturday night. As I'm recording this late, late night on a Friday night or Saturday morning, whatever you prefer. So uh, I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about that game, Georgia and Alabama, the ramifications of the winner and the loser for that game. Then I'm just going to get quickly into week six of the NFL. We're speaking about the Green Bay Packers and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. We're speaking about the Los Angeles Rams and the San Francisco 49ers. We're speaking about a lot of things, a lot of teams concerning what's happening in week six in the NFL. So mainly football, all about football. I did a YouTube video of... um, the NBA, the whole LeBron James winning his fourth championship and his fourth MVP. And of course, anytime LeBron James does something, you know, the haters and, you know, those who worship at the altar of Michael Jordan come out and say he ain't shit and he ain't nothing and he's overrated and all these type of things. So 
you know, I once again delved into that discussion about, you know, what's your definition of who's the greatest? And as I mentioned before, I always thought that that uh, argument between, you know, Jordan and LeBron, who's better, as I've mentioned before, and I'll always mention it again because you can't hear it enough. I don't give a shit. I think the argument is silly. I think it's ridiculous. I think it's a waste of time. I think it's a detriment. And um, it's just a shame that people are so ignorant in their views about warning, begging, pleading, trying to do everything they can to keep down someone like LeBron James, the basketball player, so they can elevate their main man, Michael Jordan, and stomp and disrespect and not give the proper dues that LeBron James has accomplished in his NBA career, even if you think ultimately that Michael Jordan is the better basketball player, for folks to still sit up there and still bash LeBron and still talk about 2011 and still talk about he's four and six in the NBA Finals and take all the negatives, you know, just so they can hype up their man is pretty pathetic. It's pretty sad. But, you know, I mean, hey, I'm quite sure that Jordan lovers will uh, appreciate, uh, you know, the fact that, oh, yeah, you know, Jordan's six and six. When it came to NBA playoffs, and that's why he's, I'm not going to even get into that. You can hear all of that stuff on my YouTube channel, Wendell's World of Sports version of it, where you get to see this beautiful face talk about what's happening in terms of my thoughts and feelings and opinions. So just go to YouTube, the name Wendell Wallace, W-E-N-D-E-E-E-E-W-E-N-D-E-L-L, Wallace, W-A-L-L-A-C-E. You'll be able to hear all that stuff. I posted that this afternoon. In between uh, substituting classes, as I was sitting at home because of the distant learning, in between my prep and my lunch, took the opportunity to go ahead and sit down and record it and uh, put it out there. So it is in the ether. It is in the YouTube universe. So go out there and see what I'm talking about. Comment, subscribe, do all those good things. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Let's get down and talk about what's happening on this podcast, the football weekend of October, what, 17th and 18th, college football, COVID updates, at least 29 games or about 10% of those played has been postponed or canceled because of the virus. The SEC postponed its first game on Monday when we're speaking about Vanderbilt versus Missouri. Vanderbilt, which had only 56 players available in last week's 41-7 loss to South Carolina, could not safely play its next contest at Missouri, so they said, fuck that. LSU in Florida... That was postponed on Wednesday. There were reports of a significant COVID-19 outbreak in Florida. And that was just days after Dan Mullen. Remember after um, that game against Auburn? and um, That wasn't Auburn because Georgia beat Auburn. Who did they play and who did they lose to? Oh, it was Texas A&M. That's right. They lost to a Texas A&M where uh, Jimbo Fisher was up there running around all over the field like he just won a national championship. But, um, yeah, so, you know, Dan Mullen after the game was speaking about, hey, you know, I thought the crowd noise at the – at the game for Texas A&M really helped them. And, you know, despite the fact that it would be idiotic, it would be beyond irresponsible, it would be beyond lunacy, lunacy, it would be beyond craziness for them to try to pack the stadium. Dan Mullen was up there in the news conference after we're talking about pack the swamp next week against LSU. Pack the swamp, pack the swamp. Well, there's no need for him to worry about whether they will be packing the swamp because there is going to be no game at the swamp after 21 players tested positive for the virus. So either that game is going to be postponed or I don't know what's going to happen. And, of course, we all know Alabama head coach Nick Saban tested positive for COVID-19 on Wednesday. He's self-isolating at home while continuing to oversee the team's practices via Zoom now. 
This is a situation where, like I mentioned before, I'm recording this late on a Friday night, early Saturday morning, where there's reports that there's a possibility that Nick Saban could be on the sidelines on Saturday. He took another couple of tests, and those came back negative, so they're still trying to figure out what's going to be happening. My guesstimation is he'll be on the sidelines on Saturday. So on a game like this, you know that he's going to be there. So, But it was um, reported on Wednesday that he tested positive and he left the campus, left the practice, and went straight home to start um, self-quarantining himself. Athletic director Greg Bryan also tested positive on Wednesday. So what Saban said in the statement, he said, quote, I found out earlier I found out earlier this afternoon that I had tested positive for COVID-19. I immediately left work and isolated at home. At this time, I do not have any symptoms of COVID, and I have taken another PCR test to confirm my diagnosis. He talked about how he felt. He said, you know, I feel fine. So I'm really not concerned that much about my health, but you never know. Look, I basically feel like when we're in our own personal bubble here, everybody is much in a much safer place and he went on to say i think as soon as you travel you get exposed to the to a lot more things and a lot more people so i mean you know saban now joins the list of one of the handful of division one college football power five power six conferences who tested positive for COVID 19 along with arizona's kevin sumlin florida state's mike marvell Kansas Les Miles, Toledo Jim Candle, and Arkansas State's Blake Anderson. They've also announced positive tests, but mentioned before, none of those guys are at death's door, or none of those guys are facing any type of serious uh, ramifications from catching the virus. So, according to reports, again, I mean, Saban was far from irresponsible in dealing with his own virus. I mean, this guy wasn't a run around saying, fuck this, this is a joke, this is a hoax. This is a democratic ploy and all this kind of nonsense. When he was on the sidelines, you saw him. If you watched in the Alabama games, you saw that he was on the sidelines, always wearing a mask. He kept socially distant, at least in public. And he says he washed his hands frequently. He appeared on social media advertisements encouraging the public to follow CDC uh, guidelines, especially we were talking about in Alabama, too. He talked about he talked to his players about keeping their distance from everyone. You don't know what they're having. You don't know what they're carrying. You don't know if this could be the guy. So be smart. Be responsible. After all, you know, I want to keep making my $8 million a year. After all, you know, I still want to keep the lifestyle that I enjoy. After all, I still want to pad my college resume. After all, I still want to be regarded as the greatest football coach and college football coach who ever played and I can't be having those situations I can't be in that position if the guys who are making it possible for me to be in that position to have those type of discussions about how great I am and where I sit in the pantheon of great college football coaches I can't have that conversation if you guys are running out going to parties going to frat parties hanging around women sleeping with women who might be carrying the virus so please be careful because daddy continues to be need to needs to get paid so you know so that was Saban's message to his players in terms of you know be safe be careful and he took all the precautions so now we're speaking so now the next question becomes well shit if he was doing all these things if he was wearing a mask if he was being responsible if he was following all the guidelines if he was social distancing exactly how in the hell then did he, did he catch the disease so he suggested, Saban was suggesting that during an interview with the reporters that he could have contracted the virus while traveling to the game against uh, Mississippi this past weekend. 
He said that, you know, when he left the bubble that the program has created in Tuscaloosa, you know, as soon as he, in fact, the quote was, as soon as you travel, you get exposed to a lot more people. I wear a mask on the sidelines, on the plane. Nobody really knows how this occurs. Man, I, I mean, that's some scary shit, don't you think? I mean, yeah, he's asymptomatic and all those type of things, but, you know, Nick Saban is one of these guys, and along with the Alabama football team, I mean, these were the guys who got tested on a regular basis. And it's scary. It's just scary to think that, you know, how many of these players or how many of these, it's just society in general or walking around feeling fine. I mean, as I mentioned many times before, shit, I could have the coronavirus and I could just be asymptomatic. I mean, how do I know? Now, I'm trying to do everything humanly possible not to uh, pass it on to anybody else if I am immune to any of the symptoms that happen, any of the more uh, uh, fatalistic symptoms that happen. But damn, man, I mean, you know, I mean, how do we know now? So medical experts warned over the summer that road trips would result in the spread of the virus. So... I don't know, man. The SEC states that they're expecting high infection rates when we're speaking about states like Arkansas, Tennessee, Mississippi, Kentucky, Missouri, Alabama. They're all ranking in the top 15 for the highest infection rates. Oh, that just happens to be where the University of Arkansas Razorbacks and the Tennessee Volunteers and the Mississippi, I don't know what the fuck their nicknames are, the Kentucky Wildcat, the Missouri Tigers, the Alabama Crimson Tide. Uh, speaking of Alabama, also the state of Alabama, that's the Auburn Tigers are playing. I mean, so Mississippi State. I mean, what what the hell is going on here? According to the CDCSC seven-day rolling average, for every 100,000 people, Arkansas is averaging 28 new cases per day, while Alabama is at 19. What What are we doing here? Why are we still playing college football? What's going on? These guys aren't getting paid. Why are these guys who aren't being compensated correctly for doing what they do as far as being student athletes, as far as going out there and playing football, why are we still doing this? LSU has had a breakout. The Baylor football team had a breakout of players of 28 players and 14 staff members with another 17 and quarantine through contract, uh, contact tracing. They believe the outbreak is rooted in a road trip to Morgantown, West Virginia, for a game against the uh, West Virginia Mountaineers on October 2nd. In fact, the athletic director of Baylor, his name is Mac Rhodes, he says everyone boarded the plane to Morgantown having tested negative. He believes that a staff member or player could have produced a false negative during testing before the trip. What the hell are we doing? What exactly in the hell are we doing playing football? What the hell are we doing playing college football? Look, from a selfish, greedy standpoint, hell yeah. Saturdays are much better when you have the opportunity to watch college football. Absolutely. But damn, man, the more this stuff comes out, the less enthusiastic or at least the less, I don't know what the word I'm looking for, the less clean, the more dirty I feel, the more guilty I feel watching college football. These kids are putting their lives on the line for my enjoyment. What? What's going on here? What is going on? So, their game, speaking of Baylor, their game against Oklahoma State this weekend, it's been postponed. Second time this season that Baylor had to cancel a college game. Thank you very much. And again, despite all of this, despite the the outbreaks, despite all of these things, college football is going to continue virus be damned. 
You know, athletic directors across the country who spoke to ESPN on Wednesday, they're talking about, you know, they're not panicking. Yeah, we respect what's going on. Yeah, we're cognizant of what's going on in terms of the positive tests and the outbreaks and everything like that. But they said they expected game postponements and positive tests for notable coaches and players and pointed to an entire season spent planning and revamping schedules to add flexibility for when disruptions occur. What? What are we? What? They expected, just just think about that for a second. And they're talking about they continue to monitor virus data and trends, but have no conversations about stop stopping the season. So let's just take a look at that. Let's, let's, let's listen exactly with some common sense in your third eye to what these guys are talking about. We expected to have positive tests for notable coaches and players. Let's just think about that again. We're speaking about 18 to 22 year old kids. A lot of them, at least half of them, 18, 19, 20, right? Are not even eligible to vote. They're not eligible to get alcohol. So what are we talking about where they're sitting there and we have adults, we have administrators, we have educators, we have those who have master's degrees and, and high you know, degrees in education and such, sitting there telling people that, yeah, we expect these players to get the COVID. What? Just think about it from your and my perspective. Could you imagine if you were working at a place and it was kind of like, hey, look, you know what? We're going to have you guys continue to go to work because, you know, after all, if you guys get COVID, that's just the way it goes. We're just, you know, we're going to continue to have you guys go to work knowing that some of you guys are going to come down or some of you gals are going to come down with the COVID. I mean, are you feeling good about that? Hey, hey, look, and I understand, you know, millions upon millions of us are living paycheck to paycheck. Millions upon millions, millions of us need a job. But when the pandemic first hit back in March, in April, during that time period, ain't nobody going anywhere. Ain't nobody heading outside with a brain in their head because they're not putting their lives at risk. And if I told you you're going to be going somewhere where there's going to be a possibility if, if I'm in a room at my place of employment and my boss comes in or my boss zoom calls me or whatever and he says uh you guys who are sitting there right now I uh, need to let you know that we are planning for some of you guys we don't know how many and we don't know who but you can rest assured 100% guarantee that you guys are going to be capturing the COVID Again, we don't know the number. We don't know how many, but we know some people of you are going to catch it. Are you going to feel comfortable? Are you going to be like, sure, boss, no problem. You got my best interest at heart. Are you kidding me? Now, yes, being an adult is much different than being an 18 to 22 year old. You know, being an adult, much different. We have children. We have jobs. We have responsibilities. We have bills. We have all those things. For the most part, what the student athlete's job is just to basically Go to school, get your education, learn, grow, mature, and be a responsible citizen. By the time you graduate from college, get yourself a good job and start being a productive member of the society. But I just, it befuddles and boggles my mind the fact that the college football administrators, the NCAA, the conference presidents and commissioners, the athletic directors, everybody is sitting up there going, we know that someone's going to test positive for the COVID. And that also shows me that those guys really aren't paying too much attention to 
the calamity of what could happen if someone did get COVID. Because that's so cavalier, man. This shit ain't like a fucking flu. This isn't like catching a common cold. I mean, this is no situation where, you know, you take NyQuil, say goodnight, and you wake up feeling better. There ain't no plop, plop, fizz, fizz, ohs, what a relief it is. For some folks, if you catch COVID, you can fucking die from this. And these guys are up there talking about, well, you know, hey, that's just the way it goes. I mean, you know, we got to put these kids out there and play, right? I mean, after all, it's about the money, 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 money. So, I mean, if it just so happens that something tragic happens, then, you know, well, well. You know, the mom and pop grocery store get to stay open. The mom and pop uh, store in Columbus, Ohio gets to stay open. The uh, mom and pop store in Auburn, Alabama or Tuscaloosa, Alabama or Baton Rouge, Louisiana or Fayetteville, Arkansas or Norman, Oklahoma. Hey, as long as those guys can make a little bit of money to stay open because we're playing football games. If it means that a player has to get sick, who, by the way, isn't getting compensated correctly for any of this, that means that he has to get sick. Oh, well, that's just the way it goes. Welcome to the real life, kids. That's just the way, that's the way it does, goes. So, in other words, to put a loop on this, to put a bow on this, if a high profile player does not die or he doesn't come close to dying, the season's going to go on. Just like I mentioned before in my last podcast. Remember what I was talking about? Where I said, what are the two things that could derail the NFL season from continuing? which would be the death of a major football player or a major football player, a major football star becoming sick, uh, Tom Brady, uh, Drew Brees, uh, Russell Wilson, uh, Patrick Mahomes. I mean, a situation like that, which all of a sudden now you have folks who are not just sports reporters and sports journalists and those who just cover sports. All of a sudden you get a much broader scope of the media coming down. You start getting folks from, MSNBC and CNN and the Fox News and CNBC and all these other folks, you know, who are don't know shit about what's going on in football and whatever. And you're starting to have Don Lemon and Anderson Cooper and Laura Ingram and Rachel Maddow coming down to their practices or comment, commenting on their shows, talking about, I can't believe the NFL. The NFL has blood on their hands. The NFL, blood over money or money over blood and all these types of uh, accusatory uh, headlines that they're going to be talking about week after week after week after week. So for the NFL, you think they want to deal with that shit? You think the NFL wants that type of exposure? Fuck no. So they're crossing their fingers and praying to the heavens that, my goodness gracious, please do not let Tom Brady, please do not let Drew Brees, please do not let Aaron Rodgers come down with this goddamn COVID and get mortally sick or get really sick or die. Because um, we'll overcome it, but it's going to take a little bit of work. Just what happens if that happens in college? What fucking happens in college? Because if the you know outside linebacker for Vanderbilt or the punter for Mississippi State or the you know starting left tackle for Kansas gets this virus and dies or gets this virus and becomes mortally ill or seriously ill, what is college football going to say then? What is college football going to have to answer to then? When you have these kids who are amateurs, not getting paid correctly or not getting paid at all, putting their lives on the line. So a bunch of rich guys can become even richer. A bunch of kids out there who aren't getting the money that they deserve are in charge I'm making sure that the economy and these college towns stay afloat. Are you kidding me? And this is the 
NCAA and the uh, college football folks at large, this is how cavalier they are about it. And I'm, when I say cavalier, I'm not talking about Virginia. What the hell is going on, man? What the hell is going on? Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So I'm wondering, with all of this shit going on, my next question is, why is the Big Ten and Pac-12 coming back to play this season? Why would the Big Ten, I mean, shame on Kevin Warren and the uh, presidents for the Big Ten for being bullied into having a season. Same thing with uh, Larry Scott and the Pac-12. They want that money. They want the, the Pac-12, so not so much the Pac-12, but the Big Ten sees the opportunity for Ohio State to play in the championship game or to make the uh, Final Four, the college football semifinals. And if they do that, that conference gets a boatload of cash. We're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars that can be split up from the from the schools that make it to the Final Four. So let me tell you something. If there was no chance whatsoever anybody in the Big Ten was even remote, remotely sniffing an opportunity to play in the college football championship, there would have been much stronger conviction among those guys not to play college football. But they want a part of that money. That's what they want. And again, that's what brings them back to playing. Both the Big Ten and the Pac-12. Which is which is sad. Which is really sad. But then again, I mean, you, you think about it. You take a look at the main power source for college football. Where are they? Where are they located? What region of the country are they located? In those regions, how would you describe, what would be the stereotypical football fan in those areas? Because if we're talking about the most powerful conference in college football, the SEC, if you're speaking about a Power 5 conference, which is the ACC and the um, Big 12, who were steadfast, they were going to play no matter what. They weren't even thinking about postponement of the season for college football because, as I mentioned before, College Station needs that football money. Uh, Norman, Oklahoma needs that football money. Uh, Starkville, Mississippi needs that, needs that um, football money. Tallahassee, Florida, they need that football money. The economy is dependent upon the Auburn football team playing. Same thing with the um, a lot of these Fayetteville, Arkansas. So if you take a look at the mount, the main power source, and you take a look at the reasons in the communities and where college football is revered, and you go to states like Alabama and Louisiana in Oklahoma, in Texas, in South Carolina, in Ohio, in Pennsylvania, in Tennessee, northern Florida, Mississippi. I mean, what do all those things have in common when you're speaking about towns like Auburn, Alabama, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Norman, Oklahoma, Tallahassee, Florida, Austin, Texas, Starkville, Mississippi, Athens, Georgia, Knoxville, Tennessee, Manhattan, Kansas, Columbia, Missouri, What's the makeup of the people who live in those states? What? Uneducated, non-college white males who are evangelicals and conservatives. And those are the main folks who sit up there and talk about this shit ain't for real. This shit is just a hoax. This is no big deal. I can go to church on Sundays and pray it out of my system if I have it. It's a conspiracy. It's a hoax. It's a democratic foible for uh, Republicans to uh, remain in power. So if you're speaking about those who are going to take the virus less seriously than the others, that's where you're going to be finding them, folks. 
That's where in this country where the region of those folks are going to be. And I've said it before. If it was possible, if it was, if they were able to, and the governor for Louisiana said, fuck it, everybody go back to what they were doing. The next time LSU played a football game at their stadium, that shit would be 95% filled. Same thing in Alabama. Same thing at the University of Auburn. Same thing in Norman, Oklahoma. Same thing in Austin, Texas. Same thing in Columbia, Kansas. Same thing in Knoxville, Tennessee. It would be the same damn thing. You think folks in diverse areas in this country, do you think they're going to be stupid enough to do some stupid shit like that? But you go out to Ann Arbor, Michigan. You go out to Columbus, Ohio. Yeah, man. Those dumbasses are are dumb enough to go ahead and do that stupid shit and vote Republican to add on to their stupidity and vote for the jackass that's currently in the presidency right now. So, yeah, it doesn't shock me that it was almost like those schools in the Southeastern Conference and the ACC and those places, that they were almost had to go ahead and say that we were going to play college football this year because their fan base is too ignorant. I'm not talking about all of them, of course, but there's too many of those in the fan base who aren't taking the virus, this virus serious enough for them to say, yeah, you know what? Um, it might hurt our economy. Yeah, it might do some damage that way, but at least people won't be dead. <laughs> at least essential workers won't be putting their lives at risk because the overflow of uh, patients at their hospitals and such. So, you know, I don't know. I don't know, but it, it's just unbelievable to me. Well, maybe not really, but we're moving forward with college football for the time being. And they, again, again, if you want to call me a hypocrite, call me a hypocrite. Because at 5 o'clock on Saturday, I'll be sitting there watching Alabama and Georgia. And the next week after that, I'll be watching another college football game all day. And when the Big Ten and the Pac-12 come back to play, I'll be sitting there watching. So, I mean, you know, call me a hypocrite, call me whatever. I mean, I'll, you know, that's, that's the way it goes. But believe me, I would feel a lot better, a lot better. It would hurt a little bit, but in my heart and in my soul, it would be a lot better feeling for me if college football just said, you know what, pause, let's sit, let's get our shit together and we'll come back and not put these guys, not put these players, not put these student athletes, not put these teenagers, not put their lives, their health at risk over the fact that we need to make some money. So, yeah, I'll be watching, but as I mentioned before, I won't be feeling great about it. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Hello, what's happening? What's going on? What's getting down on the get down? Wendell's World in Sports. 
After dark, as I'm now recording this on a very late Friday night or Saturday morning, whatever you prefer, is past the midnight hour. I'm not going to wait till the midnight hour. That's when my love be coming down. I want to wait till the midnight hour when there's no one else around. I want to take you, girl, and hold you. Do all the things I showed you in the midnight hour. Play it for me, Steve. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So, speaking about college football, the sport I just bashed unabashedly, the game of the weekend so far, the game of the year, the number two ranked Alabama Crimson Tide at the number three ranked Georgia Bulldogs. As I mentioned before, as of this recording, I have no idea whether Nick Saban is going to be on the sidelines or not. If he's not, Steve Sarkeesian, the offensive coordinator, is going to uh, replace Saban for this game. Now, don't worry, guys. Uh, Sarkeesian was the head coach at Washington from 2009 to 2013. He was the head coach at USC from 2014 to 2015. So he does have some experience, but I'm, I'm quite sure that he'll be getting his cues from uh, Nick Saban. Uh, between quarters, at halftime, if Nick Saban cannot make it to the game, I'm quite sure there will be some type of communication that uh, they'll have set up to where he can voice his opinion and do all those things, and somehow, some way, they'll be relayed down to Steve Sarkeesian. Not so much in terms of whether he's going to go for it on fourth down or whatever, but just in terms of the overall game plan or his thoughts and feelings or you know, the direction of what they might try try to be need to be doing. Quite sure Nick Saban, even if he's not on the sidelines, he's gonna be uh somehow he's somehow gonna be able to uh relay those messages to Coach Sarkeesian. But my guess would be I'm going about eighty twenty that state Saban's gonna be on the uh, sidelines, as I mentioned before. He tested negative on Wednesday and then in the subsequent two tests that he took, there were uh, no, on Wednesday, he was positive, and then the subsequent two tests that he took, they were negative. So it's like if you get three negatives in a row, then you're good to go. And So that's the thing. I mean, he's not flying from Alabama to Australia. So if he can somehow, the game doesn't start till 8 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. So I'm quite sure that, you know, on Saturday morning, he can hop a flight from Alabama to Georgia and be in there in absolute no time. So when you're speaking about the matchup, between Alabama and Georgia. It's going to be the number one rated offense in the country, speaking about them, Alabama Crimson Tide, versus the number one defense in the country when we're talking about them Georgia Bulldogs. Now, Alabama offense has averaged about 8.6 yards per play, which is the best in the bowl subdivision by a large margin, and they've scored 111 points in the last two games against poor Texas A&M and Mississippi. Georgia on offense is only averaging 5.2 is averaging 5.27 yards per play, but they lead um, college football in time of possession. But on defense is where they make their bones. Kirby Smart, the defensive coordinator, former defensive coordinator at Alabama, has taken that acumen over to Georgia, and with the talent, the studs, and the five-star recruits they've been getting since 2017 when he became the head coach. At Georgia, I mean, that defense of his has been stout. No different so far in the first three games for uh, this squad for Georgia, giving up just 3.7 yards per play, which is the nation's best mark among teams that have played multiple games. On defense for Alabama, well, that's a different story. You would think Nick Saban. I mean, we're talking about Nick Saban here. Learning the game from Bill Belichick, Nick Saban. But on defense, Alabama is allowing six yards which is over the course of the season would be the worst mark 
for Saban at the coach at Alabama. Yikes. And last week against Mississippi, gave up 40, <laughs> gave up 48 points and 647 yards. What were those guys doing? Auditioning to play in the Big 12? So there you have it, man. There you have it. Alabama, and again, as you would think, because even when Saban was the head coach at Michigan State, and then he moved on to LSU and his short stint with the Miami Dolphins before becoming the coach at Alabama, this was a guy who always, old school type of football, run the football, don't make any mistakes, play tough defense, win football games that way. You know, the old Bud Grant, Minnesota Viking way of winning football games. But uh, over the last couple of years, man, this guy has become like, I don't know, man, like like Mouse Davis or not Miles Davis, the trumpeter, not not that guy, you stupid motherfucker. I'm talking about the offensive coordinator who, you know, put who instituted the run and shoot and, and all of these crazy gadgety type of uh, offenses which put points on the board, run and shoot and all these type of things. You think Saban was a disciple of Eric Coriel or, or Sid Gilman or something like that. I mean, they've become... Like, skilled player on offense, you. Mac Jones is filled in very well for Tua Tunga-Vailoa. First three games of the season, he's completed almost 80% of his passes for 1,100 yards, eight touchdowns, and just one interception. Alabama, as I mentioned before, I mean, take a, just take a look at the wide receivers. It's almost like if you want to be a pro, if you're a wide receiver in high school and you want to become a pro at that position, you go to Alabama, which, you know... What in the name of Greg McElroy is going on here where, you know, Alabama all of a sudden is like the Houston run and shoot with Andre Ware. I mean, since Julio Jones was drafted number six in the 2011 NFL draft class, that really started the floodgates for really talented NFL type skilled wide receivers to go to Alabama. And Julio was from New Jersey. So this wasn't a guy who was in that region he came from, you know, the northeast part of the country to play down in Tuscaloosa. But ever since Julio Jones was drafted by the Atlanta Falcons, number six in the 2011 draft, five Alabama wide receivers have been drafted in the first round. As you speak about Amari Cooper going number four to the to the Oakland, then Oakland Raiders in 2015, speaking about Calvin Ridley being the 26th pick in 2018 by the Atlanta Falcons, Irv Smith Jr., the tight end, Drafted by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at number 18 in the year 2019 uh, draft. And then this past uh, draft class, you have Henry Ruggs III, who was drafted number 12 by the now Las Vegas Raiders. And you had Jerry Judy with the number 15 pick, who was drafted by the Denver Broncos. So it seems like every few years or so, or every just, you know, more than any other school out there, you have the, you know, Crimson Tide from Alabama are the ones who are you know, giving the NFL the top wide receiver prospects or wide receivers who can contribute. And Amari Cooper has been a multiple-time pro bowler. Calvin Ridley uh, now is starting to step up and become a really good wide receiver. Henry Ruggs seems to be on his way to doing well in the NFL, providing Derek Carr with a deep route. Jerry Judy, you know, providing some, um, uh, providing some skill positions for uh, Drew Locke. So, you know, Alabama started to become like a pipeline for those guys. And the wide receivers this season for the for Alabama, Jalen Waddell and Devonta Smith, they're projected at the two and three best wide receivers in the NFL uh, draft class. They're only behind LSU Jamar Chase. 
in terms of their prospects. Waddle is projected to go in the top 16 if he continues to progress like he's doing. So on offense, man, it's like they're set. They are set. Najee Harris already has 10 touchdowns and is an every down running back, one of the best in the country right behind or right along with Travis uh, ATM of Clemson. Both him and his backup, Brian Robinson Jr., are averaging over six yards per carry. So on offense, the offensive line is strong. So on offense for Alabama, that's no problem. And really, I guess you could say since Lane Kiffin became the offensive coordinator at Alabama and kind of, I don't know what he did to Nick Saban, but ever since he got to Alabama, man, that uh, offense of his had been put into hyperdrive or the Alabama offense had been put into another level, into another gear. And you see now that Alabama is not winning games Sabanish way, 17-14, uh, 21-17. They're beating people if they need to in semi-close games like 56-45, to 45-34, 48-41. So the question then is going to be how effective can Georgia's offense be against Alabama's defense? Because I'm telling you right now, they ain't gonna, Georgia ain't going to shut Alabama down. They're not going to hold Alabama down. And when I'm speaking about shutting Alabama down, my define, my de- definition of the term or the phrase shutting somebody down when you're speaking about uh, Alabama is holding them to somewhere between 17 and, and 21 points. That's shutting an Alabama offense down. And I don't think that's going to happen. As strong as Georgia is on defense this year, for the first two games, you saw what they did to uh, Tennessee. You saw what they did to Auburn. We're speaking about a whole different animal when you're speaking about the Alabama Crimson Tide on offense. So the key is going to be, I guess, if you could just possibly, if they allow 28 points, the Georgia's, de- Georgia's defense allow 28 points, I think they did an excellent job. I think they should be commended because – my question then going is, all right, exactly how, I'm, I'm taking a look at the Georgia offense. It looks a lot like the Georgia offense from a couple of years under Jake Fromm. Kind of looks like the same offense, the same philosophy. They're averaging 45 rushes per game so far this season, as opposed to 34 passing attempts. Now, I understand that because of the quarterback that they have, but still. I mean, if, if you're going to be doing that, ball control ain't going to beat Alabama. You're not going to be able to do that. The running game has not been Kirby Smart, Georgia type effective just yet. I mean, if you think about the couple of games that they played against Arkansas, they ran the ball 42 times for only 121 yards. That's about three yards per carry. Against Auburn, they ran 22 times for only 39 yards. That's less than two yards per carry. Then against Tennessee, they ran 50 times for only 193 yards. That's less than four yards per carry. Sophomore Zamir White is the most used back so far, but no one on that team has even come close to rushing for 100 yards in the game. What in the world of Nick Chubb and Evander Holyfield's kid is going on there? Well, you don't have a Georgia running back not running for 100 yards against, you know, Auburn has always, always had the good uh, defense, but you couldn't get 100 yards against either Arkansas and Tennessee. One back kind of emerging from the pack and going ahead and do that. Again, Stetson Bennett the fourth through three games or two and a half games. It's great. Completing 63% of his passes, five touchdowns, no interceptions. Okay, 
good game manager, solid. Jake Fromm type. His total QBR of 93 ranks third among FBS players behind Matt Correll of Mississippi and Mac Jones of Guess Who, Alabama. But can a walk-on, do, do you really expect for those who are thinking that Georgia can pull the upset, do you really think a walk-on who has played two and a half games in his career is good enough to beat Alabama, even at this stage of his career? Again, ball control, bland offense, game-managing quarterbacks, they ain't beating Alabama. You need to put some points on the board. You are not going to shut them down. You are going to have to outscore them. In the last five seasons under Nick Saban, they've had six losses, right? In those losses, even in those losses, Alabama's put up 31 points per game. And that includes a 16-point performance against Clemson in the 2018 um, National Championship game and 14 points against Auburn in 2017. Ain't nobody going to be holding Alabama to under to a 14 points anymore. And again, so even when they do lose, they're giving up, they're, they're scoring 31 points per game. So they're not losing any defensive battles, but they're not in any defensive battles at all. Because if you take a look at their defense in those losses, their defense, and for speaking about Alabama, they've given up 41 points a game. But I don't think that the offense that Georgia has playing against Alabama, albeit a defense that's shaky, shall we say to say the best, to say the least, they're not, Georgia's not going to be putting up 41 points a game the way that they uh, play offense. They're not going to be putting up 35 points a game the way they play offense. Not unless they, not unless the defense goes hog wild and returns a couple of uh, interceptions for touchdowns or the special team make the play. But that offense can't genu- uh, uh, can't, uh, you know, muster up four to five touchdowns, uh, against Alabama. I don't know how they're going to do this. I don't know. If I'm Georgia, if I'm Kirby Smart, I, I mean, I doubt that they would do this, but you need to get four to six dynamic plays, big plays on offense in order for them to have a chance to win against Alabama on Saturday. I, I would give a couple of plays. I'm serious. I would give a couple of plays to Dewan Mathis, the highly talented freshman, the guy who was supposed to be that guy that was supposed to spruce up the offense, bring it up to the uh, 21st century, take it away from the less miles type of uh, style of offense. But the last time we saw Dewan Mathis play in the season opener against Arkansas, well, he was terrible. He completed 8 of 17 passes. That's only 47% for 55 yards. He took two sacks. He threw an interception. Yeah, he only he had 30 yards rushing and 10 carries. So Kirby Smart was like, yeah, we're, we're done with this because Georgia was not looking good at all. Mac Jones, I'm uh, sorry, uh, 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 the uh, quarterback um, came in for <clears throat> came in for those guys. Um, oh, my goodness, this is the guy. Uh, Stetson Bennett, the fourth, thank you very much. He came in, he completed like 20 passes for for over 200 yards, 211 yards, two touchdowns, didn't throw an interception. He only took one sack, and there you go. That was it. So I, I, I understand that, you know, he hadn't gotten – he hasn't gotten that much run afterwards, speaking about DeWan Mathis, but they need something, man. They need some athletes. They need some big playmakers. They need to do something because the style that they've been showing so far for Georgia, that's not going to be good enough no matter how weak, no matter how shaky 
the Alabama defense is. The way that Georgia plays offense conventionally, that ain't going to get it done against the Crimson Tide. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World of Sports, After Dark, I'm your, ho- I'm your host, the Dark Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things going on today in the world of sports. So, speaking about what's happening with the game of the year so far in college football, Alabama versus Georgia. So, let's break it down, man. What is the true meaning of this game? What are we talking about here? What's the ramifications? What's the impact? What exactly is waiting the winner or the loser of this game right here. Because the winner is going to have a major case for replacing Clemson. Depends on what they do against Georgia Tech. And I'm quite sure because of this game that Clemson is going to try to put up as many points as possible to try to keep their number one spot. But the winner is going to have a really good case for replacing Clemson atop the coaches poll while also claiming the pole position in the SEC race for the national semifinals. We know the... We know the... You know, procedure in terms of when they're deciding who the top four teams are. They normally go with the champion, the champion from the SEC conference. So that would put the winner of this game in a very advantageous position. And if you take a look at the schedule, let's just say Alabama goes ahead and wins this game. So now you're speaking about the remaining schedule being at Tennessee, then Mississippi State, then at LSU, then Kentucky, then Auburn, then at Arkansas. And if you take a look at Georgia's schedule, if they beat Alabama, we're speaking about them playing next week at Kentucky, then Florida, then at Missouri, Mississippi State, at South Carolina, and then Vanderbilt. Taking a look at these two schedules, I'm thinking Alabama would have the much easier time going undefeated. Tennessee on the road, oh, whatever. LSU is a train wreck so far, especially on defense, so... That was not the uh, that was is not the trap game or the danger game that it normally is. And then you take a look at uh, Georgia's schedule. I mean, Florida. I think they're going to bet. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Florida lost to Texas A and M. Who did I say lost to Texas A and M before in the uh, first couple of segments of my podcast? I just thought about that. Yeah, Florida lost to Texas A and M. Ah, oh, fuck it. But uh, so yeah, so I think Florida is going to be tough. Um, and, um, that's about it. But still, I think the toughest game for either one is going to be Georgia when they play Florida at the largest, at the world's largest cocktail party. So I, I think in all actuality, though, for a program moving forward, for a, I think this game is much more important for Kirby Smart, head coach Kirby Smart and the Georgia football program. They, they need a signature win 
for that program. And look, I'm not up here speaking about they need to fire Kirby Smart or anything stupid like that. But I'm just saying, man. I, I just thought after that 2017 um, college football championship where they lost to uh, Alabama 26-23 in overtime after leading 13 to nothing, I thought basically that Georgia had the opportunity to be where Clemson is right now in terms of being a power in college football. Because if you think about it, and they'd be good. Again, this is not a, you need to fire Kirby Smart, or he sucks, or he was a bad hire, or they've underachieved. I'm not saying any of that stuff. I'm just saying the only thing left on the resume other than winning a championship is just just that, you know, hey, we were, we've arrived, we're here, this, that, and the other type of win. And they haven't gotten that yet. And beating Alabama would do that. And look, since, again, the start of the 2017 season, Georgia 39-7. They've won three division championships, one conference championship, one playoff berth, and two other appearances in New Year Six Day, uh, New Year uh, Six Bowls. So again, this ain't like you know Kirby is underachieved, and what is he doing? I mean, this ain't a Jimbo Fisher situation, okay? But over that same span, Alabama is forty-one and four with one national championship and a second appearance in the national championship game. It's it's right there. It is right there for um, Kirby Smart and those guys. And as I mentioned before, they had that one chance so far. And they had Alabama. Jalen Hurts was playing terrible. Nick Saban got desperate, b- broke last because of the emergency. Tunga Vailoa came in and lit the world on fire. That was the world's introduction to one of the most dynamic quarterbacks in Alabama history, for heaven's sakes, alive. But moving forward, I just thought that Georgia was going to be one of those programs that would give Alabama the greatest challenge. I didn't think it was going to be Clemson because after that championship game in 2017, Georgia had the number one recruiting class in the country. Then after that, they had the number two recruiting class. And now this past season in 2020, they had the number one uh, recruiting class. And if you take a look back at that recruiting class in 2018, the plum, the gem, the jewel of that draft class for, or that recruiting class for Georgia was some guy named Justin Fields, who was the number two prospect in some, you know, scattering high school recruiting blogs and books and papers and all that kind of stuff. He was the number one prospect ahead of Trevor Lawrence. But if he wasn't number one, he was number two. He, that's, that's as far as he fell. So whoever you were looking at, it was either going to be Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields as the number one high school prospect in the nation that time when he was playing down there in uh, Georgia, playing high school down there in Georgia, speaking about Justin Fields. But, you know, what's, I mean, was Kirby Smart wanted to stay with um, Jake Fromm, who's a nice quarterback who's a good quarterback, who's a solid quarterback, but he ain't going to win you a championship. He ain't a dynamic quarterback. He ain't a college franchise quarterback. He isn't a Heisman Trophy type of candidate, talented type of quarterback. That's what Justin Fields was. Oh, and by the way, at the time, Jake Fromm was a sophomore. Jake uh, Justin Fields was a freshman. Somehow, some way, you couldn't maneuver some type of strategy in there for Justin Fields to play 
to the point where he wasn't discontented enough to go ahead and go to another school. And you saw the impact that he had for Ohio State, a much bigger impact than Jake from State from. So that is, that was beyond devastating if I'm Georgia. And look, again, this is not to say that Georgia has underachieved or anything like that, but goddamn, you had Justin Fields on your roster and you let him go? That's the biggest damn what the fuck since Cam Newton was on uh, Urban Meyer's Florida roster. And then he did some stupid stuff and got kicked out and had to go to junior college in Nowheresville, Texas and come back and win in a Heisman Trophy and a national championship for Auburn. But damn, at that squad, on that squad in Florida, you had Tim Tebow and Cam Newton on that team. That's the same type of shit when you're speaking about um, Georgia, where it's like, damn, we had Justin Fields on our team, and we decided to let him go and put all of our faith in a Jake Fromm. Eey. But look, again, after the 2017 season, just barely missed the opportunity of winning the championship. 2018, they started the season ranked number three. They got as high as number two before losing to LSU. They finished that season 11-3, lost to Alabama in the SEC championship game, where Tua Tungabailoa got hurt. Jalen Hurts had to come in and bail out the Crimson Tide to allow them to win. 28-21, and then feeling sorry for themselves and licking their wounds. I mean, they played a haphazard, lazy, non non I mean, they just weren't in it in their Sugar Bowl game against Texas. That was the game where I think Tom Herman got on the stage and was talking about, we're back. Okay. You're back to what? Mediocrity? So, um, yeah. So, 2018 started off strong, high expectations. I wouldn't call it a failure, but, you know, a couple of missed opportunities there. But, you know, 2019 started the season right number three again before losing to South Carolina. Then they lost to LSU in a... SEC Championship game, 37-10. They did beat Baylor in the Sugar Bowl, 26-14. But this, hmm. Georgia has been good. They've been really good. They've been really, really good. But I just thought, I just thought they'd be elite, that's all. And, and I think a win, saving or no saving on the sidelines, I think a win over Alabama on Saturday, I mean, that that should put them in the stratosphere where it's kind of like, you know, hey, we got something going here. I think, uh, you know, I thought maybe LSU might have replaced uh, Georgia in that regard to say what is, who, what team outside of Clemson is Alabama's biggest rival. But you see the struggles, and now the questions are back on, you know, what type of coach is Ed Orgeron? I mean, is this a guy who can, is this a guy who can motivate and recruit, and then that's it? Because if he can, if he, if all Ed Orgeron can do is motivate and recruit, but can't coach, or doesn't have unbelievable assistant coaches like he had with uh, Joe Brady then he ain't going to be able to beat the really top coaches. He's not going to be able to out-coach a Nick Saban. He's not going to be able to out-talent a Kirby Smart if there's nothing really to cover his bear in terms of the coaching acumen of Coach O. So my enthusiasm toward finding a true rival every year for Alabama in LSU has been tempered just a little bit, just a little bit. I'm going to put that on hold in terms of, of affirming 
that that's my stance in terms of who can give Alabama years down the road a real run for their money, or at least Alabama during the Saban era, who can give what football program in the SEC or anywhere can give Alabama a real run for their money besides Clemson. I'm putting LSU on the back burner for just for a quick second. That team should be Georgia. And maybe that team will announce itself as being the number one contender to take down the champ uh, if they beat the Crimson Tide on Saturday. And they've had some good wins. They've had some quality wins. Georgia's had some really good wins during those seasons where I thought that they would be making their ascent to being one of the top college football teams in the country that will be competing for the number one spot and competing for national championships every year. 2018, they beat Florida with their ranked number nine, 36-17. And then after that, the week after that, they beat uh, Kentucky, 34-17, who was ranked number 11 in the country. In 2019, they beat Notre Dame, who was then ranked seven, and then beat Florida, who was ranked number six, and beat Auburn, who was ranked number 12. Yes, 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 yes! It's a good program. It's a very good program. But thought I'd do more. Thought it should be more. And again, that decision. Nah, I wouldn't, I'm not going to haunt them because, again, we're speaking about Georgia. We're speaking about Kirby Smart. We're speaking about coaches who can go out and recruit, and the cupboard should never, ever be bare. Georgia, Kirby Smart has put them in a position at Georgia where they don't rebuild, they reload. Mark Rick, when they were the coach, when he was the coach at Georgia, he had to reload. Or excuse me, he had to rebuild. That's not Kirby Smart. He gets those recruits. He's going to bring in those recruiting classes. And I think he had the coaching acumen to um, go ahead and to uh, build a strong contending program. He's got to get his quarterback situation in order. I don't know if it's the OC. I don't know if it's the quarterback coach. But they need to they need to be patient with the uh, with the guy they got with the with the guy that they're bringing in now. They they need they need they need they need to be patient. With uh, with uh, who's the kid? The Dewan Mathis, because the guy they got in there now, Stetson Bennett the fourth, nice nice story, walk on all that type of stuff. He ain't gonna win your national championships. He ain't gonna beat the Clemsons. He ain't gonna beat the Ohio States. He ain't gonna beat the Alabamas. He's just not. So you need that dynamic quarterback. You need that dynamic playmaker. You need that guy. Now they all were already swung and missed with one five-star, highly recruited quarterback in Justin Fields. Let's see what they can do in developing another one. But uh, when we speak about which program needs to win this football game more, Alabama's going to be fine. I mean, Alabama, that, that, that shit is a pipeline. So you know just by resume, you know just by experience that Alabama's going to be there. This is an important game for Georgia to announce. You know what, Alabama? Win or lose, you might still be there at the top. But guess what? If we win, we're going to be side-by-side with you.
Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. I am tired. <laughs> I must be getting old. It's heading up to 1 o'clock in the morning. And uh, I don't have the same verb or the same vigor that I normally have, but that's fine. I'm going to keep soldiering on. I'm going to keep marching on. In the background here, as I'm doing my podcast, as I'm recording this podcast in my humble townhome in northwest Las Vegas, where it's been like 90 degrees or 89 degrees or 88 degrees and sunny and hot, sunny and hot, sunny and hot, sunny and hot for the entire month of fucking October when it should be in the goddamn 80s, in the 80s, low 80s. But as I'm recording this, I am watching on YouTube the first Super Bowl. The Green Bay Packers and the Kansas City Chiefs. Don't have the sound on, of course, but taking a look at that. The television version of it. A lot different then than it is now. I tell you, I'll tell you that. But uh, they're playing at a half empty Los Angeles Coliseum. There's actually people in the stands. Hey, you guys wearing your masks? Six feet, six feet. Oh, I forgot. This is 1960 something. Never mind. Go back to what you were doing. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Okay. NFL Game 6. All right, guys. Have a seat for me, please. Thank you very much. I'll wait. Thank you. My name is Mr. Wallace, Wendell Wallace. I am going to be giving you the assignment today. Uh, We are going to be talking about the NFL Week 6, the games of consequences. Now, you guys need to pay attention. There will be a quiz on this. I'm only going to go over this once. Do not ask me to repeat anything. If you have a question, please make it legit. Too legit not to quit. So, please, pay attention. I'm going to go through this rather quickly. So, you need to be focused on what I'm saying because there will be a quiz. I don't know if it's going to be later on today. I don't know if it's going to be next week. I don't know exactly what day it's going to be. But it will not be open note. It will not be open book. You are going to have to go home and study these things because this is very important if you're an NFL football fan. So, if we're speaking about NFL Week 6 games of consequence, I'll wait while everybody gets a sheet of paper. Do you have a sheet of paper over there? Are you ready to go? All right. What about you? You good? You good? You need paper? Pencil? Pencil? Paper? Pen? All right. Good. The New England Patriots. We'll start off with them. The Patriots were scheduled to play the Broncos on Sunday. In week five, but the game was initially moved to Monday before it was postponed due to further positive COVID-19 test on the Patriots. Then New England was scheduled for a week six bye, but instead they're going to play Denver in week six. Okay, that's the New England Patriots. The Denver Broncos, on the other hand, were due for a week eight bye, but they served their bye in week five alongside the Patriots after that postponement. So Denver now was scheduled to play the Miami Dolphins in Week 6 this upcoming Sunday, but that game has been moved so the Broncos can play the Patriots in Game 6, or in Week 6, Denver and Miami is now going to play in Week 11. Got it. Moving on. The Broncos were also supposed to play, by the way, the Chargers in Week 11, but that game has been moved to Week 8, where Denver was originally stated slated for a bye. Any questions? Any questions? Okay, moving on. The Tennessee Titans... They played Tuesday night in week five. You know, they hadn't played in a while because of their nonsense and not following protocol and a whole bunch of players coming down with COVID or a whole bunch of employees coming down with COVID. Well, the Titans will be hosting the Texans as scheduled in week six, but then Tennessee will make up its week four game against the Steelers in week seven, week four, 
became the Tyler the, the uh, Titans bye week due to the COVID nineteen outbreak. The Buffalo Bills, who were forced to play the Titans on Tuesday, they're forced to play their Sunday scheduled five week five game against the Titans on Tuesday due to the COVID nineteen protocols involving Tennessee. So that pushed the Buffalo's week six game against Kansas City, which was scheduled for Thursday night to Monday night at five o'clock Eastern Standard Time this upcoming Monday. So far, Buffalo will have played all of its scheduled opponents in the correct weeks, but twice different days of the week, okay? The Kansas City defending champions, instead of playing the Bills on Thursday, the night in week six, that game will now take place Monday, as I mentioned before, at 5 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. The Miami Dolphins have played both the New England Patriots and the Los Angeles Chargers on their schedule, so since those games... Since those schedules have shifted, so has Miami. Since the Patriots and Chargers were uh, compensated or were compromised, so does Miami. So the Jets at the Dolphins have been moved from Week 10 to be played in Week 6. The Chargers at the Dolphins moved from Week 7 to Week 10. The Dolphins at Broncos moved from Week 6 to Week 11. The Miami Dolphins now will have its bye week in Week 7 instead of Week 11. Ah! I can't take this anymore. Fuck this. Throw everything. Forget everything I said. You know what? Turn on your red zone. Turn on the TV on fun, on Sunday. Find out who's playing and just go from there. Because they've got the Los Angeles Chargers who were affected. you got the uh, New York Jets. You've got the Jacksonville Jaguars and all of these other things. Which means that this game, that's a domino effect and I'm losing my mind. It's too late in the evening, too early in the morning for me to be doing all of this stuff. And I'm about to lose my fucking mind going through all of this. <laughs> Let's talk about some games of the week, shall we? We um, The uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Green Bay Packers are going to be playing. Um, Green Bay is coming off a bye. Tampa's coming off really a mini bye. They played last Thursday in their loss to with Chicago, so they had a little bit of time. The good news for Tampa Bay um, wide receiver Chris Godwin and running back Leonard Fournette, they should be back in the lineup. Mike Evans now has had a little bit more time to heal up and get healthier. He's Tom Brady's number one uh, target. Brady's done well. He played pretty well. I mean, he's, he's gotten better. He's had, he had a really good game, except for the pick six against the Los Angeles Chargers. But he's, he's playing like a quarterback that can lead a team to the uh, playoffs so far. Um, he's not the Tom Brady of old, but he's, he's he's doing well. He's doing well. Tampa on defense, though, led by the um, offense defensive coordinator Todd Bowles. Uh, second, uh, you know, they're they're doing very well. They can stop the run very well. For Tampa, this is going to be the second test of the season to see how much better they've gotten, right? Because if you think about it, everybody was hyped. Everybody was ready. Everybody was curious to see how they would look against a team Many thought were one of the elites in the NFL and the New Orleans Saints. They didn't pass that test in terms of getting a win. Then they went ahead and they beat Carolina. Then they went to Denver. Then they beat the Chargers. And everything was looking a little bit more rosier. And then that whole situation where Brady didn't know if it was third down or fourth down in the Chicago games. And they lost that game. You can't be losing to the Bears, especially with Nick Foles. So we'll see what happens during this test. 
Um, what's going to come out of this if they do beat the Packers? Does that mean anything? Long term, not really. If they, you know, win or lose, of course, it depends on how they play. You know, you can't go out there and get blown out. But if they're competitive with uh, Green Bay, week six in the season, where it's been topsy-turvy, turmoil, COVID-ridden in terms of its awkwardness and scheduling and all this kind of stuff, you know, Tampa Bay at three and three, in the in the NFC South, where Atlanta sucks, the Carolina Panthers are good, I guess, are, are exceeding expectations, but you don't really think as much as Teddy Bridgewater has come back, and I think that he's a guy who is a quality quarterback in the NFL, you, you, you really don't think that a Carolina Panthers team with Teddy Bridgewater as his quarterback is going to be beating out Tom Brady, even at the age of 43, and the weapons and the talent that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers have. Do you? Really? And, you know, there's stuff brewing in New Orleans that's kind of interesting. I mean, Michael Thomas gets suspended because he got in a fight in practice and was shouting back at Sean Payton. And, you know, Drew Brees has started off slowly. Um, The offense, defense, slowly. But, you know, I'm not sitting here saying that, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Long term, still too early in the season. We're only in week six. But what I'm saying is a three to three, a three to a record of three and three for Tampa Bay is not a death sentence in terms of you know them trying to reach their their goals and their expectations. So, you know, so far for um Green Bay, I mean they're four and oh. I think we might need to start paying a little bit more attention to those guys. And you're speaking about Green Bay getting back two pro bowlers. In receiver Devontae Adams, the defensive tackle Kenny Clark. Clark has been out since he suffered a groin injury. A groin injury. Good, good groin. Good, good groin injury. Sam Malone cheers. Look it up on YouTube, youngins. But uh, he suffered a groin injury in the opening, in the season opener. And Devontae has been sidelined since week two with a hamstring injury. So we'll see. Uh, how well they play in their first game back in a couple of weeks. Aaron Rodgers has been playing very well. Running back Aaron Jones has been one of the top weapons in the league so far. So that's going to be a good game. Looking forward to it. Other games, I mean, you have Pittsburgh and Cleveland. How for real is Cleveland? I mean, Cleveland came out, looked terrible against Baltimore, but then they played a couple of games where it's kind of like, yeah, you need to beat Washington. Yeah. You need to be uh, Cincinnati. Yeah, you need to be. But then it went. Then it went ahead and they beat uh, Indianapolis, and put some points on the board against that squad. So it's like, hmm, okay, this is interesting. This is going to be another test for Cleveland to see how far they come, to see how legit they are. Odell Beckham Jr., who hasn't uh, practiced or was sent home for practice because of uh, feeling under the weather. I don't think it's anything COVID related, or I, it wasn't reported that it was anything COVID related. He should be able to play on Sunday, and that definitely means it's any, it isn't anything COVID-related. Um, you know, Baker Mayfield has been up and down. I think the best thing for Baker Mayfield is to be a game manager as a quarterback. The guy who, in his rookie year, threw 27 touchdown passes and 14 interceptions and was yapping off at the mouth and thinking that he was the second coming of Brian Sipe and, and uh, Bernie Kosar and, and Frank Ryan for the – Cleveland Browns and far the pantheon of quarterbacks that have came through and been successful in an organization. I think through maturity and learning and everything, I think he's backed off that that uh, perch 
of arrogance, but, uh, you know, it's a big test for him. It's a big test for him. One of the running backs, Nick Chubb, is not going to be available for Cleveland, so Mayfield's going to have to put the ball in the air. And that uh, Pittsburgh secondary is uh, pretty good. So we'll see what happens. Pittsburgh, on the other hand, just continues to roll. Roethlisberger has come back from his injury that kept him out almost all of the season. And uh, he's playing well. The defense, again, is playing well. So it should be a uh, pretty interesting game to see, A, how for real is Pittsburgh. I made the um, I asked the question before on my last podcast about you know, with the Kansas City Kansas City defending champions, uh, not looking as sharp as they were during their Super Bowl run last season and being underwhelming against the New England Patriots and then losing to the Las Vegas Raiders. Is Pittsburgh a team that could possibly be a real challenger for the crowns of uh, Kansas City? Well, we'll get a better answer to that question when they play Cleveland on Sunday. So the... Other game that's interesting, the Chicago Bears sitting at 4-1, and one, the Chicago Bears. No, 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 not without not with Mitchell Trubisky. Remember, that guy is sitting on the B-E-N-C-H. Um, Nick Foles is quarterback on that team against a surprising Carolina football team who had been undefeated, as I mentioned before, in my last podcast with uh, without Christian McCaffrey. That'll be an interesting game to watch. Interesting also in the Los Angeles Rams and the San Francisco 49ers. Jimmy Garoppolo, I guess he's going to play. He says that his ankle, the high ankle sprain that he suffered against the New York Jets, I believe it was in week two. He says that he's feeling great. Or what was it, week three? I don't know. Anyways, um, Garoppolo's up there talking about this is the best he's felt since he uh, first injured the ankle. So he didn't look very good against Miami. It was horrible. And uh, horrible enough to where Kyle Shanahan had to save himself from himself. So... He was like, you know, take a bench, rest up, and uh, we'll see you next week. So we'll see what happens. You know, every year there's always teams that were going into the season considered to be elite or title contenders. And I had San Francisco or one of my tiers that were elite, along with the Baltimore Ravens and the Kansas City Le Champions and, um, and the New Orleans Saints and such. Well, through no fault of their own because, you know, when you lose Nick Bosa off a of defense because of a torn ACL and, you know, you lose a couple of players from your D-line and, you know, and their top defensive lineman is playing in Indianapolis instead of San Francisco. So the defense is not the same wrecking crew that it was last year. Richard Sherman is still injured. Um, right now on the offensive side of the ball, Debo Sweeney and a couple of other players are coming back for uh, – uh, the 49ers, let's see how that team looks. Let's see how that team performs because right now they're 2-3 and three, and they're in a division in the NFC West where you do have Seattle undefeated at 5-0. You do have the LA Rams who are 4-1 and one, and you have the Arizona Cardinals who are 3-2. and two. So even five games in, you don't want to get too far behind when you have that type of talent ahead of you and the injuries that you're dealing with if you're the 49ers. So that's a game that I'm going to be interested in. Monday night, the other Monday night game, not the main Monday night game. Depends on, you know, what your definition of that is. We have the Kansas City defending champions against the Buffalo Bills. Um, I'm interested in that game. I'm interested in two things in that game. Number one, what's Kansas City all about? 
I mean, was the loss to Las Vegas something to where it's like, oh, okay, let's go ahead. Le'Veon Bell, I don't think it's going to be activated. And even if he was activated after choosing the Chiefs, damn it, after choosing the defending champions, they're not going to get, uh, I don't think that he would be a major factor in the game anyway, but that was a huge pickup for Andy Reid in Kansas City. It's going to be interesting to see exactly how Eric Bieniemy, the offensive coordinator, who should be a head coach next season. It's going to be interesting to see how, as the season wears on, how they're going to be utilizing Le'Veon Bell. I'm quite sure it's going to look very tasty. And then, I guess, with the Buffalo, I'm interested to see how they respond after physically getting beat up against the Tennessee Titans and how Josh Allen... Uh, responds to a little bit of adversity. He's been going smooth. He's been going great for the first uh, part of the season. He got, uh, he got humble. I don't say, Josh Allen is never, he's not humble. He's not, he doesn't need to be humble. But what I'm saying is, is that those who are thinking Josh Allen was going to be the MVP and all that kind of stuff, that train ran off the tracks just a little bit. Let's see if it's been able to put back on the tracks and he can continue to uh, have the season that he was having before. Kansas City on defense has been vulnerable as far as the pass is concerned. We saw David Carr exploit that defense with a couple of long passes last weekend. We'll see what happens going on Monday night. And then, of course, Arizona and Dallas. The game, first game, Dallas is going to be playing without Dak Prescott. I mentioned before. In terms of the Cowboys, I think that despite the fact that their defense is porous, despite the fact that there have been injuries on the offensive line, I still think Dallas, especially playing in the weak division that they're in, the NFC East, I do think that Dallas has the weapons and the tools for them to win that division. Um, We'll see how well the offensive line can hold up. I mean, people are talking about, well, you know, because Andy Dalton is not anywhere near Dak Prescott, especially in terms of how comfortable Prescott was and how well he meshed and gelled with offensive coordinator Kellen Moore. And you can't expect to have Andy Dalton come in and expect to replicate the type of success that uh, Prescott had with Kellen Moore. So because of that, well, sure, they're going to have to rely on the run a lot more. Ezekiel Elliott is being paid like, a, like one of the top running backs in the NFL. He's going to have to start showing it now. Depending upon that offensive line, I mean, it's going to be uh, it's going to be interesting. But Amari Cooper, he wants to be paid like a number one wide receiver. And, you know, let's see what he can do about that, and uh, we'll see. We'll see. On the other end, Arizona, Kyler Murray. All right. I mean, this, mm. I don't know what to make of this fucking team when you're speaking about Arizona. Cliff Kingsbury. I mean, that was supposed to be one of the teams that was supposed to make that jump. If a team was supposed to be from going from mediocre to possibly title contending or playoff ready or making the playoffs. Arizona was one of those squads, especially because of the ascension during the rookie season of Kyler Murray. I mean, can that offense continuously work the way that it's being run right now? And I don't put the blame on Murray. I just don't know if that system is going to be long-term successful in the NFL for for uh, Kingsbury. So we'll see. We'll see. But it's going to be an important game. You know, if you're Arizona, you have to continue to keep up in the NFC West. And if you're Dallas, 
you know, we'll see how the maturation period starts. And we'll see how the uh, growth of Andy Dalton and his teammates uh, start. Because this is the beginning of a long jury. Dak Prescott isn't coming through that door, folks. And if he does, he ain't going to be going there to play football this season. So it's Andy Dalton's team from the quarterback position. So we'll see how he does. All right. Oh, and by the way, another game that I want to mention, I'm very into. Um, me being a Washington football fan, the Washington Snyderskins, the Washington Foolskins, the Washington Dysfunctional Skins, the Washington Sexual Harassment Skins, the Washington We Need a New Noter Skins, the Washington Could You Please Give Us Anybody Except Daniel Snyder Skins, the Washington Embarrassing Skins, the Washington I Still Can't Believe I'm a Fan of the Team Skins, the Washington I Must Be the Dumbest Human Being on Earth Because I Still Root for the Team Skins, are going to be playing the New York Giants. Washington comes in at 1-4. The Giants come in at 0-5. Me being a big, big fan of the Washington, yeah, I must be as dumb as I look because I still root for the team skins. <sighs> Thinking about the future, we need to lose this game. This is very, very important. I'm a little nervous because the Giants stink out loud. And they're one game ahead of us for the number one draft pick. Washington is right in that mix with Atlanta, with the Jets, with the Bungles, with, um, I expect Houston to become a lot better. But uh, the, the Giants, I mean, we're, we're right there in that mix. I want that number one pick, man. I want that number one pick. I want Trevor Lawrence. We need Trevor Lawrence. We've got to have Trevor Lawrence. So because of that, we have to sacrifice this season. I'm sorry. We ain't winning the Super Bowl. And Kyle Allen is not the answer at quarterback. Definitely ain't Dwayne Haskins. They won't even let that motherfucker in the building. Now, yes, I know that he's sick, but still, damn, they're like, yeah, that's okay. Not only you were not only were you demoted from the starting quarterback, you have a guy who damn near lost his life and his leg playing before you do. Your third string, uh, DH. DH means Dwayne Haskins. Your third string, man. You don't even dress up for the games. We're not going to win a Super Bowl with that core of players. Hell, we ain't going to win five, six games with the quarterbacks that we have on our roster right now. We don't have anybody at the skill players except for McLaurin at the wide receiver position. We don't have anybody who can block anybody in the offensive line is Aaron Darnold. I mean, shit. It was, you know... Pat your stats to uh, get your bonuses on your contract day during that time. Good Lord, poor Alex Smith. Poor Alex Smith, he was getting destroyed by a poorest offensive line. Brandon Sarah for the uh, skins are... Oh, shit, sorry. For the uh, Snyder skins are coming back. I ain't going to do too much. Is Trent Williams going to come with them? Oh, yeah, I forgot. We traded his app because he got smart enough and said, I don't want to play for this joke of an organization. So we have a porous offensive line. The defensive line, I thought they were going to be gangbusters after the first game against uh, Philadelphia. We see how poor they were and how embarrassing they were so far. But this is the winnable game for Washington, and we cannot win this game. We've got to lose. So here's hoping that the Washington football team goes 1-15. Somehow, someway, Daniel Snyder loses ownership of the team. Man, wouldn't that be something? 
Wouldn't that be something in, in less than, are you speaking about November 3rd? Could you imagine how wonderful it would be in less than a year if the fucking asshole that we have, the incompetent piece of shit, that arrogant, corrupt con man that we have in the White House right now, we get his stupid ass out of there and get someone in who has competency? And we can replace that stupid motherfucker and we can get Daniel Snyder to lose ownership of the majority of ownership of the Washington football team? Do you, do you know how much I would rejoice? Do you know how much I wouldn't mind giving the last five years of my life for something like that to happen if I could live to be 85 years old? If I'm scheduled, Lord, Lord, let me let me speak to you for a little bit. Lord, if you're... I mean, my dad died at 90. My mom's still going at 86. So I have the genes, I have the makeup to where, you know, if I'm lucky and whatever... You know, I'm going to be living, a, possibly living a pretty long life if I just go by, you know, my parents and such. Lord, I'm telling you right now, if you have me penciled in for living to be, for me living to be 83, I will gladly take, I will gladly take six years off my life if you could A, get rid of the fucking idiot that we have in the White House right now, and B, get rid of the clown that we have running the Washington football team. I'll take six to seven years off my life. I will live, I will live 25 years. And then that'll be it. Let me live another couple of decades and a half for the honor, for the pleasure of seeing the Washington football team being run by competent ownership. Please, I don't mind dying at the age of 75, 76. You don't even have to have the Washington football team win a goddamn Super Bowl. Just be competent. Please. 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 And I'm not James Brown. Just do that for me, Lord. I don't ask for much, do I? I don't ask for the prettiest girls. I don't ask for the biggest houses. I don't ask for the fattest bank accounts. I don't. I give my thanks. I give thanks for everything that I've got. I praise your name. I try to do the right thing, even when no one is looking. I try to be a right person. I try to confess my sins. Could you at least do me this solid? I'm not asking for Halle Berry. I'm not asking for Selma Hayek. I'm not asking for the big house, the biggest house in the biggest side of town. I'm not asking for the fattest bank account. I'm not asking for the movie roles. I'm not asking to wake up tomorrow and have a voice like Otis Redding or Levi Stubbs. I'm not asking for any of that. All I just asked for is just for, please get Daniel Snyder out of there. Please get Daniel Snyder away from being the owner of the Washington football team. Get someone in there. I don't care who he is. I don't care if it's a he, she, what their, what their political stance is, what color they are, how old they are, what their sexual preferences. I don't care. I don't care what religion they are. I don't care. Just please get me somebody in there who can actually run a team. Please. I mean, hell, I don't care. I mean, I would take a, give me a guy who will, or a gal or somebody like that who can field me a competent football team. And then in the off time, go to Florida massage parlors and ask for happy endings. I don't care. I don't care. All right, I'm done. <laughs> it's like I'm tired. I must be tired. I'm talking gibberish. I want to thank everybody for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to go to my YouTube page, 
Wendell Wallace, W-E-N-D-E-L-L, W-A-L-L-A-C-E. Check out the video of what I'm talking about. Talking about the NBA Finals, talking about LeBron, Magic, uh, LeBron and Michael Jordan, who's better. Um, you know, it's a lot of good stuff. It's not three hours or two hours. I mean, basically, it's anywhere between 45 minutes to an hour. No breaks, no music, no intro, no outro, just me doing my thing. So it's working. It's a work in progress, trying to get better at it. Me and my wonderful, beautiful, fabulous, talented, still single, awesome goddaughter, Sydney Davis, is going to help me put some stuff together. She's wonderful. She's fabulous. She's my favorite human being under the age of 51, and I absolutely love her to death. So check out my YouTube channel. Oh, and I miss her very much, too, along with my parents and everything else. Um, check my YouTube channel. If you like, subscribe, do all those good things. And don't subscribe. Don't forget to subscribe and do all these good things on uh, concerning my my podcast also, Wendell's World of Sports. All right? All right. Music. 